When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to More Than Amused. I'm Stani. And I'm Sadie, and welcome to our episode today. I'm excited to finally be talking about the women of Impressionism. Same. I feel like we've mentioned Impressionism a a lot. lot. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of fun that we get to actually like talk about it this time. Also, what I thought was cool is like when you brought up this idea of the women of Impressionism, I was like, oh, but that's a lot of women. I mean, like, that's potentially a long episode. But what I didn't maybe realize is that they were all like so connected you know what I mean? That like they were also connected within it. As I was doing the research on the women, basically, I was realizing that I felt like it made sense to kind of present on all of them at the same time. It was such like a joined little moment. Yes, in exactly. And so it's kind of crazy because it's like they were all pretty much in France, mm-hmm. right? And then it was all during like the 19th century. So just primarily in like the 1870s 1880s mm-hmm. and they were all just like a little club had similar educations and everything like there's a lot that really brings these people together yeah so, absolutely kind of yeah i thought that it was a cool thing to dive into because i mean i'm sure you probably studied impressionism a bit more than i did in college but <laughs> <laughs> i mean probably i don't think they really require impressionism for your music yeah. degree but <laughs> unfortunately music degree didn't learn a lot about these kind of art movements so it was cool for me to like jump in and be like oh okay this makes sense this is cool mm-hmm. i love impressionism i mean the style is so good it's yes just stunning that and post-impressionism are two of my favorites yeah i just I- I will say of all the movements that we've studied, sometimes, you know, I'm talking up the women maybe a little bit more than I'm talking up the art movement that they were a part of because (laughs) I don't, you know, I don't love every single style as much. But like with the Impressionism, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is this is stunning. I love this. (laughs) They're gorgeous. And even like the men of Impressionism, obviously, Mm -hmm. we're focusing on the women. But the men of Impressionism are also like extremely talented and some of my favorite paintings Mm -hmm. that I've ever seen. And from what I know of them, I think they're like relatively good people in comparison (laughs) to a lot of other art movements. I could be completely wrong, but (laughs) (laughs) But But, you know, you have like Claude Monet and Uh, you have Monet and Degas and Watt, these beautiful, 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 famous paintings. Yeah. So they're not as bad, at least that I know of. So (laughs) yeah, at least from what I know of Claude Monet, he was like a very charming little French man with a garden and, you know, I mean, can't get much more wholesome than that, I guess. (laughs) Could be wrong, though, but (laughs) don't ruin my disillusionment if I am. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to like be reading a little bit more about this as the episode goes mm-hmm. on yeah we're gonna expose some of these artists as being like really <laughs> sexist to these women so oh we'll see not. well 
should we just jump in? Let's do it. So we'll do a very quick overview Mm -hmm. on what impressionism is and then we each have different women and we have their basic overviews of their life some of them were a bit more fuller of lives maybe than others that sounds bad everyone lived a wonderful full life but (laughs) some have a lot more information available for us to share so we'll try and keep it brief still well impressionism something that's fun about it is that the name actually came from claude monet himself He made this painting in 1872 and he titled it Impression Sunrise. And people were really mean about it, as they always are when the new art movement comes to the forward of, you know, society. Mm -hmm. And there was actually an art critic named Louis Leroy who threw a fit about the whole thing. And then that ended up creating this whole impressionism art movement that continued despite how much everyone hated it. (laughs) I love that. We've reference this book in the past but there is a the short story of women artists by Susie Mm -hmm. Hodge at this point I've almost been using it as not a dictionary but kind of it's just like such a great resource as far as like you know different movements and honestly a lot of things involving women and the arts and they have a section on impressionism is it cool if I just read this little paragraph from it so focused on ephemeral effects of light the their work was initially condemned for appearing unfinished and garish and they were deprecatingly nicknamed the impressionists with sketchy brush marks and bright colors often created with the alma prima technique painting in one sitting the artists used modern technology including photography synthetic pigments and portable paints and in general painted everyday scenes among the exponents of the style were three women artists Berthe Morissot, Mary Cassatt, and Marie Bracamont, mm-hmm. who were described in 1894 by an art critic as Les Trois Grandes Dames of Impressionism. Or like the three great ladies. If you the three great French. ladies of Impressionism. <laughs> uh huh. Either the granddaughter or the great niece of the Rococo painter mm-hmm. Jean Anor Fran. Oh man, there's a lot of French names that we are yes. going over. But Morissot was born in a bourgeois. Family, having learned drawing as part of a gentile young lady's accomplishment, she defied convention and studied art seriously for a time under Jean Pepti's Camille Court. She and her friend, Edouard Manet, influenced each other either. And then from 1874 to 1886, the Impressionisms had held eight independent exhibitions in Paris. Morisot exhibited in seven of them. So... Mm-hmm. Basically, just to show that like these women were a very big part of it, which I thought was cool. And those are the three women that we'll be covering, plus one more who was also a part of Impressionism. Let me, I guess I realize we should probably list who we're going over today, but it's the three women (laughs) I just mentioned that are the three great ladies of Impressionism. And then we're also adding Eva Gonzalez, who was a good, like a big part of Impressionism and left her own mark as well. I think she was kind of left behind because of, I'm trying to remember, I guess you'll cover it. So Mm -hmm. we'll figure out why she was left behind in the the list of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Something else I wanted to mention about Impressionism that's very cool is we've talked about this so many times, but with every like art movement that comes and is new, like women are able to be a part of it easier than previous art movements that were Mm -hmm. there. And this is especially true of Impressionism. Women were able to exhibit right next to the men. They were able to work closely with their colleagues that were 
male, which was very, very rare, especially in like the French painting scene of the time. And one of the things that made that possible is because Impressionism focused on what is called plein air painting, which is painting from like real life or even outside. And like you said, in one setting. So they would go, they would sit at a park, they would paint, and it would all be done in one sitting all outside, which obviously has its own complications. But because women weren't allowed to work from models within art studios and schools, and a lot of the times they were banned from different instruction of techniques and everything else, Impressionism was approachable because they could Mm. actually go and sit in a park and paint people and they were allowed to do that. So it gave them an opportunity to paint from real life and yeah. like have models in a way that like no other movement at the time was allowing them to do. Cool. So it was pretty much like I said, like the perfect situation for women just to be like, hey, we actually get to be and want to be a part of this. Yes. And especially because it was like considered the outlier, you know, like they were like, mm-hmm. oh, impressionism, like the no one wants to be an impressionist. But then it allowed the people who did to kind of all be on the same footing rather yeah. than having the men be ahead. Yeah, that makes sense. They were all outcasts. <laughs> so it allowed for maybe more of the <laughs> usual outcasts. I don't know. Exactly. Okay, well, that's Impressionism. Do you want to start? Want to yeah. yeah. And we'll switch off every we'll other go. lady. Perfect. Okay, so I get to start with Marie Brockamond. Mm-hmm. And I just have to say her name is so fun to say. Yeah, was, that is almost <laughs> so satisfying. <laughs> yes, it really is. She was born Marie and Carolyn Quivoron, I think is how you say her maiden name, on December 1st in 1840. And it was in France, of course, in Brest, Brittany, is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually had a very different upbringing from a lot of the other female impressionists we'll be talking about. Her parents had been in an arranged marriage. I guess like they still were, but they weren't very happy. It wasn't a very good match. And so it kind of created some difficulties, obviously. They moved a lot and her mother ended up pursuing a life with a different person rather than Marie's husband. Mm. So they moved from like Switzerland to Limousine and then ended up settling in the south of Paris. She had one sister named Louise that was born just a few years after her in 1849 and began painting lessons in her teen years under the instruction of M. Auguste Vassor. He actually was a painter who restored paintings and then gave lessons primarily to the young women of the town. Because we've talked about this before, but the young women were required to learn how to paint in order to become like an accomplished woman or society woman. You know, like it was like considered a good skill just like embroidery or a lot of other things Mm -hmm. but they weren't allowed to really like pursue it as a career most of the time yeah so obviously that's what he he did he helped teach the young woman painting however she progressed like really well and very fast in 1857 she submitted a painting of her mother sister and her teacher posed in the studio and the salon ended up accepting it We'll mention the salon a lot probably throughout all of this. The salon was like the end-all be-all of like art galleries in Paris. Like if yep. you were accepted into the salon, it meant you were something. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things with Impressionism is it got rejected from the salon like over and over and over again. <laughs> so <laughs> A critic at the time actually referred to her as one of the most intelligent pupils in Ingress's studio. 
Wow. And she was very frightened of the painter Ingres, <laughs> who mm. ended up teaching her in her later years. She said, the severity of Monsieur Ingres frightened me because he doubted the courage and perseverance of women in the field of painting. He would assign them only to the painting of flowers, fruits, still lives, portraits, and genre scenes, mm. which we've talked about a lot as well, that they were constrained to what they were allowed to paint as well. Yeah. She did end up leaving Ingress's studio later and started receiving commissions, including one for Empress Eugene of a painting Wow. of Cervantes in prison. Cervantes was a guy who was captured by the Turks and spent five years in prison before he was ransomed and returned home. Oh, interesting. Oh, he's the author of, I don't know how to say it, Don Quixote. Oh, I don't know either, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that book. Anyway, so she was asked to paint a picture of him in prison, which she accomplished. And they were very pleased with it and ended up asking her to make some copies in the Louvre. Wow. Um, which was a very common thing that they actually had a lot of women painters do at the time. You'd go into the Louvre and you were in charge of copying the paintings that were hanging there into like copies. I guess because they didn't have like a way to just like scan it. And oh, like but digitally they, have it available. Oh, that, that's such an interesting thing of just like asking a different artist to like copy it as close as they can. So they would go and sit there and paint and copy the paintings. Wow. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. And that while she was copying old masters in the Louvre, she saw Felix Braquemond and he fell in love with her. Mm. He asked his friend to arrange an introduction. And from then on, they were completely inseparable. So they just fell in love in an art gallery. Very adorable. Yeah, that's that's very wholesome. They were engaged for two years and then got married on August 5th, 1869. Her mother was very opposed, but they did it anyway. In 1870, they had their only child that they named Pierre. And because of like horrible medical care, <laughs> especially in Paris in 1870, her health had deteriorated really fast after her son's birth. And sadly, like most of what we know about her life actually came from a biography authored by her son. Oh, wow. Um, after her death, he really was a champion of his mother's career and work. And like most of what we know about her comes from him because of how much he like respected and championed her after her death. So wow. very touching. They ended up working, her and her husband, Felix. So Felix and Marie, they worked together at a studio where her husband was the artistic director for a while. And she was in charge of designing plates for dinner services, which oh. sounds really amazing. And also, she created these, like, large tile panels that depicted the muses, which we hey. love. Those ended up being shown at a universal exhibition in 1878. In, like, the 1860s, she ended up having a lot of paintings that were accepted for the salon on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. However, she found the medium that she was painting in just, like, really constricting her husband was trying to teach her etching, but it just wasn't like really, you know, like resonating with her. Mm -hmm. She did end up producing nine different etchings that were shown at an exhibition, but she just like wasn't really loving it. And then her husband ended up introducing her to some artists that he had met, including a Belgian painter, Alfred Stevens, and, and then a bunch of other artists. And obviously that's where she was introduced to Impressionism and started to change her style of painting. She started painting with larger canvases. Her colors got more bright. 
she moved out of doors and started painting outside Mm -hmm. and then started using Monet and Degas as mentors, which are two of the greatest impressionist painters ever. So (laughs) she painted this well-known painting called The Artist's Son and Sister in the Garden at Service and also started participating in Impressionism exhibitions all throughout the 70s and 80s. Yeah, so it ended up working really, really well for her. Sadly, her husband hated Impressionism. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, he really, really despised it. He thought it was like a horrible movement. He wasn't a fan. Interesting. Which is a bummer because Brockamond was very talented. She actually like spent a lot more time planning her pieces unlike a lot of other contemporaries. Mm. And so even though like Impressionism looks very spontaneous, like hers were very thought out. Yeah. And she even like traditionally planned them like with sketches and drawings, which was very uncommon for Impressionism. So she was probably like the most traditional Impressionist. And yet she was extremely overshadowed during her lifetime and even shortly after her death by her husband because he was so resentful of her work. Wow. Um, Yeah. According to their son, he was resentful of his wife, brusquely rejecting the idea of the work and refusing to show her paintings to visitors. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. In an unpublished manuscript written by Pierre about his parents' life, he shares his father seldom showed her work to friends. When he did compliment her, it was in private. Therefore, none of the artist's friends paid attention to her works or spoke of her efforts. And when she revealed hopes for success, Felix put her ambition down to incurable vanity. In 1890, Marie Brockamond, worn out by the continual household friction and discouraged by lack of interest in her work, abandoned her painting except for a few private works. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like it really ended up being the end of what she did. And it sucks because her husband had all of these like influences and like opportunities and friends and like, you know, people he could introduce her to and really build her up and make it like more of a thing. But he just – hated impressionism yeah well i wonder like how much of it really was or was it like i wonder how much of it hit was him just being maybe a little bit threatened by her being so good at it but yet it also seems that he was supportive of her being an artist before so i'm like did he really just hit hate impressionism that much like i know i just it's crazy right because he'd be like well she loves it like you know get over it (laughs) yeah like um (laughs) Yeah, but it's just crazy. And I mean, he met her in an art gallery when she was painting. You think he would be under the assumption that she was going to continue continue painting? Yes. That's why I'm like it's he also- must have hated it like literally that much, which is so yeah, weird <laughs> to me. Well, it's especially weird because like he kind of fits into the impressionism movement, like not in the same way, but like kind yeah. of he did etchings and like Japanese woodblock prints. And that was very akin to Impressionism. Like, that was one of the main influences of Impressionism was a lot Mm. of, like, the Japanese style of woodpock prints. So it's just kind of sad. Like, it's sad that he hated it so much that he basically ruined the opportunity for his wife's further career. Yeah. Maybe his ego was just that bruised. I guess. It's sad, too, because, like – She grew up watching her parents have this unhappy arranged marriage and then she married for love, like despite their wishes. And then he ended up like never even complimenting her in public. And that's what I was going to say. I'm like, dang, like I was so stoked on 
someone we're covering to have like a good happy marriage and then nope never mind that did not age well sorry that's all right (laughs) however i mean despite all these obstacles she was described like we talked about by henry cillian as le troy's grandems you know one of the greatest Mm -hmm. women of impressionism she has been omitted from a lot of books on artists which is attributed to the efforts of her husband Weird. Uh, however, oh, it also says here Pierre Bracamond stated that his father was jealous of Marie's work, belittled uh, her ambition, and refused to show. So, yeah, he probably was just jealous of how accomplished she was. Uh, Despite her husband, she remained a staunch defender of Impressionism throughout the rest of her life, even when she wasn't actively painting. In defense of the style of one of her husband's many attacks on her art, she said, Impressionism has produced not only a new but a very useful way of looking at things. It yeah. is, though, all at once a window opens and the sun and air enter your house in torrents which i love and it is beautiful yeah i love that she ended up dying in paris on january 17th in 1916 however retrospectively she's been included in many exhibitions on women in impressionism especially the 2018 exhibit of women in paris from 1850 to 1900 so she still has a name for herself but obviously a lot of that comes from the work of her son afterwards well and good. Um, at least yeah. then there is a good man in this story and that is her son yes. so good for him honestly that's Little amazing Pierre, i know yeah. like realizing that his father was just jealous and really was... wanting to champion his mother yeah good so. all right well like i said at least there's one good yeah. man in this story <laughs> yeah. and i mean they did remain married <laughs> so even though the art was a thing like it really does seem like they loved each other so I guess know. that's good. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just sad that he couldn't be more supportive of her career. Yeah, for real. Okay, well, I'll talk about Birth Morisot. So she was born January 14th of 1841. She was, of course, a French painter, and she was a member mm-hmm. of the Circle of Painters in Paris who became known as the Impressionists. She was born, like I mentioned, in 1941 in Bourges, France, I believe. And she was born to a pretty affluent family. Her father was the senior administrator of the Department of Cher, basically a political figure. He also studied architecture at École des Beaux Arts. And then her mother was the great niece of Jean-Henri Frag. Mm-hmm. Fragonard. Fragonard. Fragonard, mm-hmm. yes, who was a very prolific Rococo painter of the ancient regime. I just have to say really quick, I think it is beautiful that a Rococo painter ended up having a like great granddaughter who uh-huh. was an impressionist. Because Rococo is like one of my favorite movements. It's also like the girliest oh, movement yeah. of <laughs> I just Googled it because I was like, I should actually realize what this is. Yes, I know this style. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, it, you kind of think of, like, Marie Antoinette. You know? Like, it's yes. just very, like, over the top. Like, mm-hmm. And yeah. I just feel like he would very much so approve. Of I feel like I can, looking at Rococo, like, I can see the through line from this to Impressionism. Like, oh, yeah. I can see how it, that eventually became, you know, this in Paris, France. Mm-hmm. No, I think they could be very closely, like, related. Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously I they have both. their differences, but I can yeah. I can see where those lines blur as far as like what they share. Anyways, mm-hmm. so the family moved to Paris in 1852 when she was just a child, and like you mentioned, it was really normal for daughters in the that upper you know 
fancy family life, I guess, to receive an art ed- education. So her and her sisters were taught privately by Jeffrey Alphonse Chakran and Joseph Guicard. Yeah, that's who it is. I don't know. <laughs> um, they're all French, guys. Yeah, they're I'm all sorry. French. <laughs> but her and her sisters initially started taking lessons so that they could each make a drawing for their father for his birthday. Uh, which, yeah, I thought was cute. In 1857, Guichard, or Guichard, who ran a school for girls in Rue de Molan, introduced her and her sisters to the Louvre Gallery, where, same, very similar, they from 1858, they learned by copying paintings. So that's how she learned. Again, lots of similarities between yeah. these women that we're talking about. What I thought was interesting is that it said that the Morissots were, at the time, for bidden to work at the museum on chaperone but also i think from their parents they were totally barred from like formal training same thing right like they're allowed to like do it almost like for a you know to do it for the family yeah cute (laughs) hobby but to get like take it actually seriously it was not approved upon but as a copyist at the Louvre, she met and befriended other artists such as Manet and Monet. And then in 1861, she was introduced to Jean-Baptiste Camille Corot, and he was a pivotal landscape painter of the Barbizon School, who also excelled in figure painting. And under his influence, she took up, like you mentioned, painting outdoors, the outdoor method of working. And then by 1863, she was studying under Achille Odenau, another Barbizon painter. I'm sure if there is like a legit art historian listening to this, they are just rolling their eyes. Forgive me. My specialty is the music side of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Good. And neither of our specialties French. So anyways, in the winter of 1863 and 64, she studied sculpture as well under Amy Millay, but none of her sculpture is actually known to survive. What I think is so cool. I know about her is really just how much different kind of like she did so much different kind of artwork per se like so like her training really was from 1857 and 1870 what's interesting from that is that like it's kind of hard to trace the stages of her training and kind of tell the exact influences of her teachers because she was never pleased enough with her work so she destroyed nearly all of her artworks that she produced before 1869 oh my goodness yeah so like we have no idea like like i said like how influential her teachers were because we don't know what it looked like but she took lessons from all those people that i mentioned and she Mostly, though, at this time, drew, like, ancient classical figures, did her, like, you know, like I mentioned, her outdoor painting. But then from 1870 and 1874, she found apparently oil painting difficult, and she worked mostly with watercolor. Mm -hmm. So, and I thought that was cool, and that was, like, a main like a medium of art that she used but then starting in 1875 is when she started doing impressionist style her first appearance in the salon de paris came at the age of 23 actually in 1864 with the acceptance of the two landscape paintings she continued to show regularly in the salon to generally favorable reviews until 1873 which was the year before the first impressionist exhibition Mm -hmm. and then she exhibited with the impressionist from 1874 onwards and she only missed 
famous impressionist exhibition in 1878 which was when her daughter was born um i know so some of the things that i think she was drawn to is like impressionism's brilliant color and the surface effects things like that what i thought was interesting is it i have to just read this little bit that i loved so impressionism's alleged attachment to brilliant colors sensual surface effects and fleeting sensory perceptions led to a number of critics to assert in retrospect that this style once primarily the battlefield of insouciant combative males was inherently feminine and best suited to women's weaker temperaments lesser intellectual capabilities and greater sensibilities which i mm. so funny during the 1874 exhibition with the impressionist monet such as monet and manet le, le figaro critic albert wolf noted that the impressionist consisted five or six lunatics of which one is a woman whose feminine grace is maintained amid the outpourings of delirious mind which <laughs> i thought that was funny <laughs> Oh my goodness. It's so weird how much like people really hated Impressionism. It's so yeah. weird to me. Especially because it's so beloved now. Yes. And I think it's so funny that they're like, oh, well, it makes sense that a woman's involved in this. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just, oh, I thought that was so good. But like through this Impressionism movement, she definitely found an audience for her work. There was someone named Durand Rule, who was the private dealer who bought 22 paintings. Um, I know. In 1877, she was described by the critic for Le Tomps as the one real impressionist in this group. And she chose to exhibit under her full maiden name instead of using a pseudonym or her married name, which I thought was interesting. And then as her skill and style improved, many began to rethink their opinion toward Marisat. And then in the 1880 exhibition, many reviews judged her among the best, including that same critic, Albert Wolf. So he came around. <laughs> he had to. He... Times were changing. So as far as like her legacy, because she was a female artist, her paintings were often labeled as being full of, quote, feminine charm, which is things that we've talked a lot about where like the, the there's always the words like feminine that are inherently attached to women's work when yeah i have a feeling if you were to put two impressionist you know style paintings next to each other you wouldn't be able to be like oh that's the girly one but who knows yeah. <laughs> but anyways they were labeled as that by the male critics and they were kind of what's the word like put up for their elegance and lightness in mm. 1890 she wrote in a notebook about her struggles actually to be taken seriously as an artist and then quote she said i don't think there's ever been a man who treated a woman as an equal and that's all i would ever have asked for i know i'm worth as much as they and then also her light brush strokes often led to critics using the word the verb ethel ethlerer to touch lightly brush against to describe her technique so i thought that was interesting february of 2013 she became the highest priced female artist when her painting after lunch in 1881 it's a mm -hmm. portrait of a young redhead in a straw hat and a purple dress and it sold for 10.9 million at an auction which and it apparently actually achieved three times its upper estimates so definitely That's awesome yeah 
outdid itself. And then this is a quote about her from Melissa Burdick Hammond, an editor at Biography Magazine. She said that while some of Marisot's work may seem to us today like sweet depictions of babies and cradles, at the time these images were considered extremely intimate as objects related to infants belonged exclusively to the world of women. And going mm. back to this, uh, the short story of women artists, like the thing that it highlights for Impressionism, it talks about her and she said that birth Morissette helped to form the group's artistic philosophy as well as organize its exhibitions with her soft palette and light brush strokes she painted the pink dress before the first impressionist exhibition although she was already working with her with their signature approach so basically this book just kind of puts like makes the point to be like no she was actually like one of the founders of this movement and did you know played very significant roles in this so i think that's a big deal also i should mention i thought that i i must have accidentally taken out the section i had about her personal life but she was married she came from you know that very affluent family her husband was eugene manet so she met her longtime friend and colleague edward manet in 1868 then he introduced her to his brother and they got married and then november 14th 1878 she gave birth to her only child julie who posed frequently for her mother and other impressionist artists actually including renoir and her uncle edward manet so i thought that was cool there was a lot of correspondence between morisot and edward manet they were really good friends it shows that manet gave her an easel as a christmas present and then birth like often posed for him there's several portrait paintings of Morissette such as repose portrait of birth Morissette and birth Morissette with a bouquet so they had a very close relationship so much like you know they were literally family brother-in-law or in-laws of each other and then she ended up passing away March 2nd of 1895 in Paris and yes while I guess when her daughter was only 16 so she died fairly young but yeah so she like i said like definitely left a very big mark on the impressionist movement and i don't think it is incorrect to say that she was one of the founders and a very very big Mm -hmm. deal in that movement being what it now is so i can't get over the legacy that her daughter has of like artists like not only is her like you know like they're descended from the famous rococo painter like yeah he's the one who did the swing and i can't say his name but like fragonard Mm -hmm. and then you've got like her mother birth morissette yeah and then she marries the brother of edgar degas Mm -hmm. what so your uncle is anyway that's yeah so very big deal (laughs) family ties in here (laughs) yes that's like art history royalty right yeah Uh (laughs) i love that that's crazy well what a fascinating lady i know now we get to talk about mary cassatt i know i'm very excited um yes this is actually like i think my mom's like favorite artist and one of my earliest memories was like looking at paintings by Mary Mary Cassatt. Okay, cool. Really excited to talk about her. So Mary Stevenson Cassatt was born on May 22nd, 1844 in Pennsylvania, actually. Albany City, which is now part of Pittsburgh. Her family is French lineage, but they were in Pennsylvania for quite a while. Her father was a successful stockbroker and land speculator, and her mother came from a banking family. They were extremely wealthy. I was going to say, I have a feeling they're very wealthy then. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. 
very, very wealthy. Her mother especially had like a really profound influence on Mary Cassatt. One of her lifelong friends actually ended up saying anyone who had the privilege of knowing Mary Cassatt's mother would know that at once it was from her and her alone that Mary inherited her ability. Wow. So yes, very, very like profound influence. Yes. Uh, she is actually a distant cousin of the artist Robert Henry. He was a part of the Ashcan school movement. If you want to look that up, Doing please it right do. Now. But yeah, it was just more of like an American art movement. I think primarily oh, during yeah. the Great Depression. I recognize this style for sure. Yes. But she was like a distant cousin of him. So some more like art lineage going on there. And then her brother, Alexander Johnston Cassatt, actually ended up later becoming the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, mm. which apparently at the time was extremely prominent, like a very, very prominent position. So she ended up being overshadowed in the United States a lot by his fame. Yeah. And most of her career and fame and everything took place in France. However, she did grow up in the United States. So <laughs> she spent most of her early years in Pennsylvania where they started her schooling at the age of six. But her parents did believe that travel was extremely important to education, so she spent five years in Europe visiting London, Paris, and Berlin. She learned German and French abroad and ended up having her first lessons in drawing and music. She also would have been exposed to a lot of artists, especially at the Paris World Fair in 1955 where she attended. Wow. There was also an exhibition at that Paris World Fair of Edgar Degas and Camille Passaro both of whom would later be mentors and colleagues of hers. So oh, cool. Lots of exposure to art and international mm -hmm. art and everything at a very early age. Of course, her family objected to her becoming a professional artist, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like most of these families did. But she began studying painting at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia at the age of 15, so very young. Part of their concern of her studying art was they were worried she would become a feminist and no. a bohemian. And she did. <laughs> her Dang, network of friends were – Exactly. They were lifelong advocates of equal rights of the sexes, especially because 20% of the students were female and very few of them were determined to make art their career. Most of them were just learning it as a socially valuable skill. So it made the few that were trying to profit off of it like, like even that more headstrong. Yeah. She continued her studies throughout the duration of the American Civil War and then decided on her own to figure out from old masters like studying and painting on her own because she believed that the instruction and the patronizing attitude of the male students and teachers mm. were really impacting her education in a negative way. Probably. Um, yes. She later ended up saying there was no teaching at the academy because female students could not use live models. Um, oh. They were made, drawn from cast, like lots of the things we've talked about where they were just not given like that equal opportunity within yeah. the classroom. So she ended her studies and didn't end up receiving her art degree. And then despite her father's objection, she ended up moving to Paris in 1866. Love it. Of course, because she was a single woman, her mother and family friends had to act as chaperones for her. And she wasn't allowed to attend the École Debut Arts, which is the school there. However, she applied to study privately with masters from the school instead. So a nice little workaround. And ended up working with John Leon Jerome, who was a very highly regarded teacher. 
and then also copied paintings in the Louvre every day. Wow. Um, Yes, in order to learn more. So, you know, they were all spending their time in the Louvre. Like, that'll do it. Yeah. The museum, especially, it talked a lot about this in Cassatt's stuff, that, like, the museum served as a very social place for a lot of American female students and then, like, French men and women artists who were not allowed to attend cafes where the avant-garde socialized. So a lot of, like, the high uppity art scene was, like, locked away okay. to them. Like, they weren't allowed to be a part of it. And so the Louvre was, like, their gathering place, mm. which I love. And that's probably why so many of them were there. Like a foot place they could kind of find common ground or – It makes you kind of wish that that's – what you could see you know like go back to the louvre and yeah like, i was gonna say i don't you feel know? like you'll find a bunch of artists just copying paintings <laughs> in the louvre anymore so no that's awesome. i think there's a few but like not nearly as much as it used to be that would be a time travel spot to put on your list yeah <laughs> the louvre actually. in 1866 mm-hmm. view all of the early impressionists during the end of that year she ended up joining a painting class taught by charles joshua chaplin who was a genre artist she also studied with thomas Couture, and then they took a lot of trips to the countryside during that time, and that's when she started learning plein air techniques or mm. painting from outside. One of her paintings from that time, actually, it's called a mandolin player. It was selected by the Paris Salon, and it's one of the only paintings we've got of the first decade of her career. Wow. So, so there's like a whole decade of paintings that we don't have anymore. Did she do something to them? Like like birth did or does it specify no no i mean later it does talk about how she traveled back to chicago and then ended up losing a lot of paintings in the great chicago fire oh so i think that might have been it but she didn't deliberately destroy them from what i can tell okay cool but who knows i mean like it's not like everyone keeps all of their school projects right that's true (laughs) yeah yeah that's a good way of Um, thinking of it There was a lot going on at French at the time, obviously, with, like, Impressionism rising and, like, academy chaos and everything that was happening with the salon. So even though she was trying to submit to the salon for over 10 years, she was getting really frustrated. And that's what ended up taking her back to the United States for a certain amount of time. It was in 1870. She returned to the United States. She tried to place some paintings in a New York gallery. A lot of people loved the way they looked, but no one ended up buying anything. Mm -hmm. And she was even considering giving up art completely, which is so sad. But she was just having a really hard time. She ended up painting some paintings of like family members But nothing was really taking off. And in a letter in 1871, she said, I've given up my studio and torn up my father's portrait that she had painted of him. And I've not touched a brush for six weeks, nor will I ever again until I see some prospect of getting back to Europe. I'm very anxious to go out west next fall and get some employment, but I have not decided where. Interesting. During that time, she also ended up losing those early paintings in the Chicago fire. She got a commission by a Roman Catholic bishop to paint some copies of paintings in Italy. And that ended up helping her fund enough of her trip that she was able to get back to Europe. Mm. And she was really, really excited about that. And the quote above said she was thrilled to get back. And she said, oh, how wild I am to get to work. My fingers fairly itch and my eyes water to see a fine picture again. So she was extremely thrilled to be back there. She ended up painting some paintings that were accepted into the salon and purchased. A lot of the art community in Parma was paying attention and saying Mm. they are talking of Miss Cassatt and her picture and everyone is anxious to know her. 
Ooh. Um, after she finished her commissions for the bishop, she traveled to Spain and did some group paintings of Spanish subjects and then ended up moving to France later that year. Oh, cool. Um, she was joined by her sister who ended up sharing an apartment with her and they opened a studio in Paris. And actually, she actually was also joined by Louisa May Alcott's sister, Abigail May Alcott, who was an art student in Paris. Wow. There's like some famous names I being know. Like, <laughs> No big deal. She was continuing to get criticism at the salon and she was also very critical of it herself. And the salon was mad at her for the criticism that she had of it as well oh. <laughs> it was this very poisonous relationship one of the critics said she's entirely too slashing snubs all modern art disdains the salon pictures <laughs> and and all of the names we used to revere so she was just very opinionated not happy yeah yeah very opinionated and not happy with the way things were going a lot of her entries ended up being rejected during that time, too. And for the first time in seven years, she ended up having no works in the salon at all. Oh, no. Um, which is not good for an artist in Europe. No. However, this very low point of her career, she was invited by a friend, Edgar Degas, to show mm. her work with the Impressionists. There we go. Um, yes. She was a little nervous about it because one of her parents' friends said that the Impressionists were so radical that they were afflicted with some hitherto unknown disease of the eye. <laughs> However, her there was another female artist, a part of the Impressionists already, Berth Morissette, and she became Cassette's friend and colleague. And she really ended up becoming close friends with Degas as well. They had like met each other briefly before and she said that she used to go and flatten her nose against the window of the art studio he was a part of and oh then gosh. absorb all that she could of his art because she was just like a huge admirer um she also was more comfortable exhibiting with the impressionists than she'd ever been with the salon and joined their cause very enthusiastically she wasn't allowed to attend cafes with them without attracting unfavorable attention i don't know like why that was even a thing because she was exhibiting with them so obviously people knew yeah but anyway. <laughs> and then it worked out really well because there was actually like a huge society in paris that was really obsessed with like the avant-garde art or, like new art that was taking place and so a lot of her work ended up being purchased during those Impressionism exhibitions. Cassatt and Degas continued to have a very close relationship. Their studios were only like a few buildings apart. And so he would come on little like strolls when he was thinking and he would look in her window and give her advice. She would do the same. They both like really similar tastes in art and literature. Both had similar backgrounds. Both studied painting in Italy. However, it's not believed that they were ever in a relationship because both of them remained independent. Neither of them ever married throughout the course of their lives. Interesting. And we don't have any letters between the two of them, but they were both like really conservative people with like really strong moral principles. And so no one thinks that they had a love affair. Even Vincent Mango said himself that Degas didn't have any like sexual exploits and they huh. were friends. So. It's believed that nothing between them happened, happened other than just friendship and art. Well, that's wholesome. 
Yeah, especially because they worked really close together for a long time. They were working on this project of like Prince journals of like etchings and different things. And then Degas just Mm -hmm. like pulled out. And without him, there wasn't enough to sustain the project. And so Cassatt had to drop it as well. And even though their feelings like remained really warm and they were always like very, very close friends, they never ended up working completely close together on a project ever again. Interesting. There's a lot about Cassatt. There's like multiple websites, biographies, everything. So if you want to learn more about her, it's all there. Surprisingly, a couple of years later in 1877, her father and mother ended up joining her and her sister in Paris. And it was especially important to them because like neither her or her sister ever married. There was actually some weird like things on this that that maybe it had something to do with like their mother and that like she couldn't see herself as a person outside of her mother's influence oh interesting Uh, yeah it's like really interesting and then her sister also had like a ton of health problems Mm. so that made it really hard for her but yeah i don't know exactly why she never ended up marrying but she didn't uh her father throughout her entire life ended up paying for all of the necessities of her life, but he would never buy any of her art supplies. So (laughs) he told her that she had to do that all on her own because he still wasn't very supportive of her artistic endeavors. So he paid for her life, but she had to sell paintings in order to pay for her studio and supplies. She ended up becoming really proficient in the use of pastels, ended up doing a ton of works with that and working side by side with Degas for quite a while again. The Impressionism exhibit of 1879 was the most successful one that she had had. Although they had lost a lot of artists who were once again trying to gain recognition at the Paris Salon. (laughs) It's like Renoir, Cicely, Manet, and Cezanne had gone back to try and exhibit there. Degas and Cassette continued to exhibit as a part of the Impressionists. A lot of critics claimed that her colors were too bright, her portraits were too accurate to be flattering to the subjects, her work was not as savage as was Monet's, and... uh, a bunch of other stuff. (laughs) So she received a lot of criticism, but continued on. Something that's really cool about Cosette is that even though she never married or had children, most of her paintings are actually of women Mm. and mothers, like pretty much all of them. And that's believed to be a part of like her feminist viewpoints that she just really championed like women's equality and just like their place in the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's believed she painted a lot of women, even though it's kind of funny that she did it mainly as like mothers and with children, even though that wasn't a role she ever took for herself. She actually, because of like her feminist viewpoints and how much she painted women and like talked about the right to vote and everything else, she was commissioned to like make a piece called like the new woman and like exhibit it somewhere and it didn't survive. Oh wow. Which is a bummer. It was like a mural for the modern woman and it was going to be held at a Colombian exposition. She completed it over 2 years and it actually was cool. It had a bunch of like women plucking the fruits of knowledge and science, women pursuing fame and then the other one was like the women pursuing arts, music and dancing, which is really cool, but it didn't survive cuz the building was torn down. With the new century of the 1900s coming forward, she served as an advisor to several major art collectors and then had them donate all of their purchases to American art museums 
So she was like really being the American art scene, even though she was in France, mm. ended up helping like American collectors get a ton of pieces, which is kind of a bummer that she was so overshadowed in America because her brother, like we said, yeah. was the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. But she really did help a ton of the American art scene. One of the last things that happened, she had a trip to Egypt in 1910 that really impressed her. However, the trip just really exhausted her. She actually ended up saying it. she was crushed by the strength of this art. <laughs> <laughs> However, it wasn't just the art. She did. She was diagnosed with diabetes, rheumatism, neurogalgia, and cataracts. So it wasn't so, the art per se. No. Her so cataracts funny. forced her to be almost blind. So she wasn't able to paint towards the end of her life anyway. Then she passed away on June 14, 1926, near Paris, and was buried in the family vault in Paris, France. And yeah, I mean, a lot of things have happened from her. There was a World War II Liberty ship that was named after her, the SS Mary Cassatt. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's there cool. was a young Juilliard string musician quartet that, like, they named themselves the Cassatt Quartet. In her honor, one of her paintings, The Boating Party, was made into a postage stamp. Dang. Um, she's inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, of course. She has a Google Doodle in recognition of her birthday. And her paintings have sold for as much as $4 million, the record price being $4 million set for a painting called In the Box. Wow. And then there's actually also a garden in Paris named after her called Mary Cassatt Garden. Oh. So, Yeah. I cannot stress enough how much there is about her. Like, there's so much. I ran across, like, three biography sites. There's books. There's, like, literally so much information about Mary Cassatt. So she's definitely one that you could learn, like, so much more about. Yeah. Because um, it's just, like, all there. Like, literally every aspect of her life is documented for some reason. Yeah. I don't even know how. Like, I didn't run into anything that said that she did that. It just, like, I think probably, like, her affluence and everything, like, it was just really, really, really documented. I was going to say, this is much more than any of the other artists that we've covered so far. So, but just because it wasn't a lot for the other ones, yeah. at least the ones I covered. And I didn't think there would be that much. And then when I looked into her, I was like, oh my gosh, like there's so much more, especially like on her work with feminism and also like her beliefs on why she never married. Apparently, there's stuff with like her relationship with her mother that goes yeah, into everything. Dang. So, yeah, there's a lot. That's Mary Cassatt. <laughs> I love it. All right, well, the last one I have is pretty quick, actually, but it's the Eva Gonzalez, and you'll see definitely why. Maybe she wasn't included in the big three, I guess, but she was born in Paris, and same as a lot of these, except for not Marie Cassaw, and she became introduced to like very sophisticated literary and art circles at a very early age by her father, who was a writer named Emmanuel Gonzalez. In 1865, at the age of 16, she began her professional training in art lessons in drawing from the portraitist Charles Chaplin. Through her father's connections as like a founding president of the Society des Jeans de Letters, but she met a variety of members of just like pretty much like the elite cultural artists in Paris. And from a very young age, she was exposed to like the new ideas surrounding art and literature at the time. So she actually became a student of the artist Edouard Manet, who is Berthe Morisot's 
brother-in-law. So, and that's kind of like what she's best known for is the fact that she started out as a pupil of him. And she started that in February of 1869. This apparently relationship was formed by poor reviews that Manet received about his salon entries, which made him hesitant to like openly discuss his work. However, I guess there was something about Eva's presence that brought Manet out of his shell. And then he actually began a portrait of her, which was completed in March of 1870 and exhibited at the Paris Salon that year. Unfortunately, her debut submissions to the salon were also in that same year in 1870, and they were overshadowed by the presence of the portrait that Manet submitted of her. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So in the portrait of Eva Gonzalez, Manet depicts her working at an easel, but her stiff posture and like her very expensive dress are like clearly unfit for creating artwork. Mm-hmm. So this depiction of her kind of caused some critics to perceive her like just simply as a young decorative model who was working with an older, more established male painter. So it's almost oh, like the way man. that she was portrayed affected how people were like, they were like, oh, well, if this is what she really looked like when she was painting, then obviously this isn't something that we need to take serious. You know what I mean? <laughs> that sucks. I know. It does suck. Yeah. Gonzalez was Manet's only former formal student who also modeled for him, but also like several other members of the Impressionist school, which I thought was interesting. Apparently his like work was discussed more than Gonzalez's was at her own 1885 retrospective at the gallery Daber's exhibition for her work Man. in 1950. So basically that shows like years later, like 1950, and they're still maybe talking about Manet's portrait of her over her actual own artwork that she had done throughout her life. So that is kind of like the sad thing about her. And another example that we now have of, you know, a woman artist Mm -hmm. who is very much overshadowed by their male counterparts. Her style, though, does very align very closely to that of Manet's more like Spanish period. But of course, slight changes were made through the years as like her own art style took place during 1871 Manet pursued the incorporation of the more brilliant colors and active surfaces of the impressionists within his work but then meanwhile Gonzalez decided to retain kind of like the more neutral color schemes and precise contours of the 1860s so their works you know like eventually they did go different directions but for the start it was definitely obvious that you know he was her teacher as far as like her career though so her work was celebrated by salon reviewers for the inherent intuition with which she approached art as well as her technical skill at one point she also listed charles chaplin with her submissions to the salon perhaps as a method to be taken more seriously so instead of you know having Manet be her teacher she was like no but i also trained with charles chaplin so pay attention to me (laughs) you know take me seriously Much of her work, though, became characterized through the salon reviews with the discussion of her feminine technique and also her seductive harmony. However, though, her large-scale painting box at the Theater des Italiens was characterized by the salon jury as having masculine vigor, which led them to reject it with questions as to her painting's authenticity. Oh, um, my goodness. I know, which we've talked about, too, that it's like, oh, it's good if it 
seems like, you know, that's a compliment to be like, oh, I'm, you're painting like a man. But it literally was so much like almost like they were so surprised by how good it was that they're like, no, there's no way you did that. But though, like, <laughs> even though they did question it, her work was reviewed positively by a variety of critics such as Louis Leroy, Jules Costanery, and Emily Zola. They praised the work she successfully showed at the salons. Like Edward Manet, she never exhibited in the Impressionist exhibitions in Paris, but she's still considered part of the group because of her painting style. While stuttering under Manet, her self-portrait suggests that she was exploring her individuality and identity as an artist by presenting subtle correctives to Manet's version of her. Until 1872, she was very, like I mentioned, strongly influenced by him, but then developed her own more personal style. This can be seen in her work such as Enfant des Troupes, which is a nod to Manet's Le Fifre. And while many of her later paintings involve portraits of her sister, Jeanne, it was common of Gonzalez to use her family members, particularly her husband and her sister, as models in her work. Some notes about her personal life. As in 1879, after a three-year engagement, she married Henry Guillard, a graphic artist, and then they had a son named Jean Raymond in April of 1883. Her work was exhibited at the offices of the Art Review, L'Art, in 1882 and at the Gallery Gorge Petit in 1883. Today, one of the most notable works is the the same one that was questioned if it was her or not, the Theatre <laughs> d'Italiens, which is described as one of the most provocative paintings of its day. Unfortunately, in 1883, she actually died in childbirth at the age of... 34, just five days actually after the death of her teacher, Edouard Manet, mm -hmm. which led her son to be raised by his father and her sister, who later became her husband's second wife. But then since her death, there's been exhibitions of her work that have been held at the Salons de la Vie Moderne in 1885, the Salon d'Etome at and then at several galleries in Paris. Her work has also been exhibited in 1952 at the Musée National des Beaux-Arts in Monte Carlo. So I feel like yeah. at least, you know, her work is still being consistently shown. But it's so sad that like she was almost immediately not taken seriously just from the very beginning because of who was her teacher, which is funny because like I feel like if a man had a teacher like that, that was like, you know, established in a big deal, it would be used to help the man artist, you know? But it seems that whenever yeah. a woman has like a good teacher like that, it's used against them as like, a, oh, well, this isn't really you, you know, or like this isn't because of mm -hmm. you. It's just because your teacher is so good. But I don't, I just don't really feel like that happens a lot with women. Well, and it sucks too for her to be so closely ingrained with impressionists of the time and yet never exhibit with them and like you know like that's what's weird to me is like if her teacher was Edouard Manet like that should have immediately thrown her into her. the impressionist yeah like exhibitions yeah. that should have immediately been like the thing so it's just kind of weird yeah it is really weird and it's just automatically used to discredit her so we love that and we don't um <laughs> So, yeah, like I said, I think it's very obvious why she wasn't included in, like, the top three, but she was also an amazing artist in her own right. She even did something so yeah. amazing that everyone was convinced it was a man, so you know it was really good. 
I just think it's funny that like a few sentences before you said that they're like, she was known for her feminine technique. And then they're like, this painting's too manly. <laughs> yeah, like there's no way it's you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Very funny. It is funny. Well, there's the women of Impressionism. And isn't it so cool, like the roles that they played and like, you know, like in just making the art movement what it what it is, which I think yes. is cool. Yes, no, completely agree. It really is like such a beautiful art movement. It really um, is. Truly, truly is. So uh, obviously we're going to be posting a bunch of their paintings and everything on Instagram. I know it's hard when we cover like four people in one episode. You're probably like, wait, there's so much more. I know. So a lot of it will be on Instagram. So please go and follow us there. I know that there's a lot of you that don't. Yes. Um. (laughs) We have more downloads than we do followers. So (laughs) yes. So go follow us there. We really put a lot of effort into it over there to make sure that you have a way to like view everything. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's more than amused.podcast. And we'll be back. We'll be back next week. week. Bye. Goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.